Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Yai, the producer with our host, Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Uh, hello, everyone. So today we interviewed Alexandria Grant, and we had a wonderful conversation about growth and changing expectations and all these things about what it takes to become yourself as an artist, as well as a bit of navigating the art world. Uh, she's someone who Dina met on a residency and who has a quite extensive, really impressive uh resume in terms of uh, museum shows and all these sorts of things and international exhibitions. So Dina, what do you think about the conversation? You know what? She is so smart. So um, she's made some of the best, I can't tell if analogy or metaphor is the appropriate word, but she would have known that. But, um, <laughs> but she was so intelligent and articulate and lucid um, and just a really enjoyable person. I, I agree. Extremely sharp, like intimidatingly so. So yes, yes. Uh, I, found, I, I, I also found her both in real life uh, and on Zoom intimidatingly sharp. <laughs> so we, but we had a great, I mean, uh, great conversation about some really relevant things, even some touching on like financial things about the art world, like where the money goes and stuff that I know very little about. That was absolutely fascinating and a little scary so <laughs> <laughs> so um so yeah on that note enjoy everyone along with being intimidatingly sharp she's such a such a pleasure hello everyone welcome to the art grime podcast i'm host marshall jones here with dina brodsky and today we're very honored to have a special guest uh painter and Many other facets that we'll get into. Alexandra Grant. Alexandra, how you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks so much for coming on. This is great. So you and Dina met on a residency, right? We met on an island. <laughs> uh, we, we met on an island in the middle of nowhere in like Herman Melville land, like around where Moby Dick was written. It's like a Scorsese movie, Shutter Island. <laughs> it was kind of Scorsese and Melville combined, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But it was also, I mean, it had a little, who is that Danish, um, the Danish director? who had like there was a famous movie where he just let the camera roll and people were actors and non-actors and all kinds of mayhem oh, ensued uh bergman no thank you later more recent it'll come to us later anyway the idea we were we were on a residency where dina and i were the expert artists who were going to provide some you know, a class, I think you were giving a class and I was doing some mentorship and a lecture. And when we arrived to the island with all the um, artists and residents, uh, the director had just popped COVID and the contamination of the staff is something everyone was really concerned about. So suddenly none of the staff of the entire residency could have, re you know, close contact with anyone. So Dean and I went from, you know, that idea that we were on our way to have this free time and, uh yeah it was beautiful 
Chaos ensues. Do you think we we all got to like know each other in different ways because of that, though? Absolutely. I mean, it's not. A, it wasn't a horrible experience at all. It actually was a wonderful experience because you literally any story that begins like a group of people went to an island, you know, it's going to be a survival story. <laughs> um, j- just to like make it clear, there's one boat a day that goes to the island and one boat a day <laughs> off the island. So, so, so once once you arrive, you're you know like and no grocery store. I mean, it was really a tiny place, but no, people were so lovely people were really lovely and resilient and uh yeah I lived in you weren't in the same house but uh I was in a house what with like 16 people who had never met before so there were all kinds of wow. it's interesting to do that as an adult and with artists and to you know I'm used to as a teacher that you know going into a sort of a more specified environment like a classroom or a series of studios and this was everyone had to sort of figure it out and then without um the leadership absolutely did their best, but it, it it was a case of quarantining. So what what can people do? So I always wonder, I'm always like, boy, you know, with all all the chaos in the world and these people we elect and everything, I'm like, boy, I have such a nice time with artists. I wish artists just sort of, everyone was artists that would get along. Did this experience uh, confirm or, <laughs> or <laughs> deny my thoughts on that? I love that idea. Yeah. The world, if the world just had artists and nothing would, I mean, you have, everyone got along and was very thoughtful. What was nice again, is there were people from every generation. Um, I feel like the main division really was the people of the morning and the people of the night. (laughs) Normal for artists. Anyway. I mean, there were the, there was the crew that like would wake up before the sun would rise and be ready with their cameras and you could hear them you know, tromp down the stairs. And then there was the, you know, the people of the wine. (laughs) (laughs) And the the people of the wine and the story. And so those people would sit. And both people, both groups met under my bedroom, literally. So I was like, I was very aware of like, who was the early riser and who was the late setter. And then the the daytime was the Venn diagram. You know, the meals where where people were at the same time. Overlaps. Yeah. Um, We got this residency. Tell us that is sort of at the the end of the story. Bring us to the beginning. Where where did it all start for you as an artist? You know, I think that art for me, you know, I I went to college as a mathematician. I think every artist has a background in other things. And for me, art came from looking at my own limitations in mathematics, but being really interested in visual culture, patterning, language, uh, literature, and then international communication across language uh, borders and boundaries and wanting to be part of it. As someone who was brought up traveling uh, between multiple countries and losing one culture and gaining another and then you know, sort of never quite fitting in, I really wanted as an adult to have a community that I fit in, but also not one that I fit in, uh, in the sense of like wanting to just have a, a, a life of like, I wanted a creative life. So, and, and, and originally that for me, that idea was academic mathematics along wow. those lines. And then because of the, 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 the real nature, the real human nature, I know, you know what I'm talking about, both of you, but 
I have the human nature of wanting to self-express and wanting to pull that like thread out and see what, you know, it's like the magician. How long can you pull that colored handkerchief, you know, string? And, and so, so yeah, art seemed to be the place that would use all of those skills of communication, whether it was sort of mathematical or linguistic, and then add the sort of kitchen sauciness of painting. I mean, painting is wild, right? Like, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> it's, I heard someone recently say it's, it's like taking a photograph in your mind is what painting, like, like giving life to a photograph in your mind is what painting is. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. Like it really is that place where you could delve into yourself and pull something out of, you know, and even like now with AIs doing a version of that. And it's like, it's still pretty cool that people can just delve into their life and experience and sit in front of something blank and create something. Well, I love, you know, I'm interested in what AI is doing, but they're recombining images that already exist, right? So your point is the sense that painters are pulling into spaces that don't exist yet. And then there's that primal urge, right? That primal urge to self-expression, which I, I'm not an, enough of an expert in AI to know if AI can self-express yet. Mm -hmm. uh, we will see. But, you know, from that first handprint, there's that sort of that decision to have the like energy of life come down into you and out through you, mm. which is completely magic, right? Um, That's great. You know, you know, so I find the AI stuff like it's incredibly interesting, but in this really, really detached way where like I don't think that anything that an AI ever makes will be as interesting as what humans make just by virtue of humans being human. We're like soft and analog and weird and, you know, idiosyncratic. And um, and there's no way it can care that much about what an AI is thinking just because it's not a human. Um, I've seen some pretty wacky, you know, uh, AI images. You know, if you Google, like, I don't know, uh, children cutting carrots or oranges you know you can get I saw this Todd Oldham googled this thing or you know and it, the images were really arresting and I think but the idea of the machine is the camera lens you know and that's just we're getting into like a very sophisticated camera lens right that's learning how to recompose things but yeah that, that sense of like when we talk about the divine I mean that's going to be how we understand the line maybe between AI, you know, I mean, that's the great thing about science fiction, isn't it? It's AIs, these robots are always trying to figure out if they're human, but what they really mean is, are we divine, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what we do know is that we are connected to the divine, however we define divine, mm -hmm. divine sounded really great. Um, but you know what I mean? Like they, we're all trying to pretend that we're secular, but we're not. I mean, we have to pretend that we're secular in order to get along, but secretly we're all not. I, not I, I love this conversation. What what does the <laughs> divine mean to you? What does the divine mean to me? You know, it's it, it has shifted uh, with maturity, of course. You know, uh, when you're little and and you don't know what a religion is, right? It's just the more you have to go sometimes. Um, 
but it's the sense of wonder and awe that you have. And then it's, you know, becomes organizational and hierarchical and understanding relationships between things. Or I remember I used to lay in bed like age seven thinking, okay, what was there before this? What was there before that? What was it? And then getting to a, you know, point in that, that like sort of logic experiment, what, okay, so there was a God say, and then I could understand the limitations of my brain when I was like, well, God is a word, right? Mm -hmm. So what was there before even words? And so I couldn't, I think when I was little, I understood that I couldn't understand very young, very, very young. Do you, do you remember, did, did you guys ever read Mary Poppins, like the original Mary Poppins? Uh, but yeah. but it, uh, um, like in the, like there's one, in one of the chapters, one of the stories, the, um, the little kids, like they, I, I think there, there might be twin babies in the family and they understand like the birds and the wind. And so they have these conversations with the wind and the sun and the sun is like, well, eventually you guys will stop being able to understand us and then, you know, become just like, like the older ones. And they're like, nonsense, that'll never happen. And then, you know, after the first birthday, like maybe the sun rises and starts talking to them and like, they just, you know, they lose it. What if we do kind of either start off or maybe end up with understanding something bigger than ourselves? We just adult life takes over and then it gets lost amongst all of the adult things that we need to take care of, like paying the bills. And Well, I also think that it gets lost not only in our own adulting, but it gets lost in intergenerational adulting. And what I mean by that is for some, for example, someone sent me a translation of the Christian, the Lord's prayer, which I was brought up in the Episcopalian tradition. So something that I knew, but it was the direct translation of the Aramaic version. So the, like what it actually was. And the language is feminine and juicy and beautiful. And I was like, that's what it was, right? So it's the generations of removing the feminine spirit that got us into this, it's still beautiful institutionalized thing that is known as like the Lord's Prayer. And I'm sure this has happened in every religious practice is that that the adulting happens um not just for us as individuals where we're just like we're going to get worn down unless we become more economical with how we engage in life but then that something feminine gets has the feminine spirit worn off of it by becoming an institution as well and so yeah i see that artists and people with what I like to call feminine spirit were the ones who are returning that into life. We need to make sure that we're always open to all the practices that are indigenous and joyful of living. So, so speaking, speaking of joyful practices, because I feel like your work has a lot of joy in it. How did you start making it? Like, like, how did you start making art? You know, I think that every child begins with some macaroni and some Elmer's glue. No, you know, like there's these really, I I found recently some early rainbow paintings. I mean, like every kid you're introduced at home or at school. Um, And then I, I think that I talked a little bit about that desire to have a life in the arts as a form of like understanding communication and desire to sort of like, Wanting to tether a kite to the creative air and to have build a life around holding on to the kite, you know, the kite being art, the air being the creative forces that are at work. Um, so how did I 
begin doing it. I mean, I studied art in college and felt that that wasn't enough um, because I went to a small liberal arts college. It wasn't really a professional uh, background for me. So I did an MFA because I felt I needed that professional part of the, of, because I didn't come from artists. I didn't understand what that life looked like. And so I went to CCA in San Francisco and that's when I, okay, this is what a professional artist, you know, learned a little bit more. Not that I really understood it. You don't really understand it. I still don't totally understand it, which I love, you know, uh, and then just began that process. For me, the biggest question I asked in grad school was, what will I be interested in? You know, um, I think, again, returning to this theme of having a life where I might not have had a lot of control over my environment as a child. Um, I really wanted to have a more stable adult life, which is hilarious, having become an artist. But I, I, the question I, I asked myself was, well, what will I care about over the long term? So my art career has been based on something that I knew I would always be interested in, which is literature and that desire to read. So I was like, if I can tether myself to a passion of mine, which is reading, so I can understand, I understand what reading is. I don't understand what artists, I'm going to put the two of them together. And Ooh. that seems to me to be a good way to get started. And it, has been how I've spent my entire career to date and plan. I don't plan on stopping. Like, this is it. Like in terms of those parameters, like interest in literature, interest in voices, um, like that are brave, right. And taking risks. And then how do I embody from my point of view, the voice of someone like Antigone, for example, or, uh, project I'm working on in Poland right now with six uh, female writers like how do I show their voices or show their poetry and I'm not trying to do it on their behalf but just in celebration of what they offer and then introduce a painting audience into a literary matter to mm. me that's exciting too is like conflict is like a word I, we need other words for abutting differences right because <laughs> cuddling is a form of that abutting differences um but we we you know how do we talk about bridging two differences together you know we have conflict but we don't have a, a a positive word for that so for me it's that using painting as a positive space of you know intellectual snuggling i guess to say okay you're coming for the color, but look, you get this stanza of this really interesting poem that you never thought painting would be the delivery method for. So if I'm understanding this right, is it is it other people's words that are ending up in your paintings? Is that how yeah. you're doing? Always. Yeah. And oh. I, I mean, it's in the title and in the theme of the show. It's always, you know, so every piece, the title will reference who the writer is and what the text is that started the process. Are the paintings 100% um, like, do I reference the entire text accurately? Well, I'm no, I'm translating it. Mm. So there's that jazz to score relationship, but I always recognize, you know, who the inspiration is. Well, it's so cool. It seems like you really found your, uh, that even in grad school, like that, 
you know, marriage of those two things is really founded. It's working. It's great. Do you remember the literature you were reading that when you started painting? Yeah, and it's um, Wisława Zimborska, for example, um, the the mm-hmm. Polish, well, one of um, Poland's uh, Nobel laureates, a wonderful poet who had a great sense of humor. For me, humor is so important. And then uh, Pablo Neruda. So I was trying, I, you know, Helen Sixu is a writer who I've been honored to be able to work with, but her writing really excited me. Not to paint at the time, you know, when I started out, it wasn't to paint her words. It was more like her method. Like she talked about, wow, language is really limited for women. What if we made up a feminine way of speaking? And I I just loved her example. Like that idea of seeing what exists as a series of materials rather than a series of limitations, right? Mm. I mean, I think that's sort of what being an artist is, is that, we see the material world and we're like, well, that's cool, but what if we added this or turn this part inside out? And so I was, I've been curious always about writers who seem to do that with writing. I, I write, I write, and I am a very clear writer, but I'm not like one of those word magician technicians that can like take language and make it new again. I wish I was, but I can do that. I can fulfill that wish of mine through painting. You know, and the collaboration with writers always helps me. I mean, I think that the studio, and I'm curious about you guys too, like the studio can be a bit depressive, right? Because you're all by yourself for a very long time and your own thoughts are as fascinating as they are, you know? Mm-hmm. But having a writer always helps me rem- like remember this is the high bar. I'm honoring this person. I'm honoring this text. And so that has always helped me keep steer clear of maybe some of the pitfalls of getting lost in the why am I doing this kind of questions that those psychological questions I feel are like the biggest derailers for artists in their own studios right Hmm. like the questions of doubt you mean yeah yeah I think so it's it's like I think it's hard to well, in my life, and I'm sure other people's, like, you kind of bringing it back to you, you took a risk, something a little more stable, like um, um, working in a field like mathematics or something. And then you're like, well, there's, I'm interested in deeper themes of human themes, like whatever the divine means, and how can I take my love of this and that and combine it? And I think so many people want that life and that in their life. And so then you think, wow, wouldn't it be great if I could get paid for that and somehow make that a career? And then that gets tricky. So in the studio kind of gets hypercharged when you're like, well, am I wasting my time? Am I ever going to get paid for this? Like, what's going to happen? Is this, should I be going, you know, should I go back to mathematics? You know, I think those those doubts really spin around for people a lot, you know? Well, by the way, Alexander, what did you um, expect your life to, you know, like like back then, this is a young Alexandra merging her love of literature with, you know, with, with, with art. What did you think your life would look like? Did you think you'd be a starving artist? Do, you know, were you practical enough to know that you, you would hustle and, and make it? Um, or did you think it would be wildly like free and glamorous and romantic? You know, it's so funny. I, I never, um, I, 
when I think back to 20s or 30s, I don't think I imagined. I mean, I'm like in shock, right? To be like, I was a brown haired person. I never imagined that I'd have a head full of white hair. That never occurred to me. You know what I mean? Like I had no, so that's, what's also funny about artists, right? Is that we actually have no imagination for what's (laughs) coming down the pipeline. So uh, I would say that I had no idea. I had no idea what, but I did know enough, you know, um, about art. For example, I remember as a child in Mexico city being taken to like, we lived a few blocks from, Frida Kahlo's house and Diego Rivera's house, you know, um, the Tamayo Museum, I would go to a lot. I remember seeing, you know, David Hockney's work very, very young um, and thinking like, so I understood the spaces of art, right? Like I understood what an artist's home looked like. I understood some parts of it. And I understood what museums were and galleries looked like. So I did have exposure to that but it was more of an idealism. I, you know, I, my, both my parents were academics. So I really had in my head, like the flexibility of an academic life. So I think I still have that idea. I think that's why I wanted to, you know, co-found Exartist Books is that I was interested, you know, again, the books made sense to me. Like the people pursued ideas that were, you know, like, fruit flies in, you know, a certain part of the world, or my father was a geologist and his passion for certain kinds of things that, that I still can't even name, you know, uh, my mom was a, or still is a political scientist. And so I think I had that sort of life in mind, a life of the mind, you know? Um, and I, and that's why my work is very much connected to life of the mind. I don't know. Um, You know, I I think in artist's life, I always pictured that wonderful, is it um, Wiley Coyote or is it the Roadrunner who builds a bridge and just hammers one more plank at the (laughs) end? And the plank, you know, so I I still think of life just being that, like, you just one plank it at a time. And then at some point, you're like, oh, shit, the land is all the way back there. But then by then you've grown wings or whatever, you know, that, that transformation always happens. I think too the miracle of survival when you're like a sur- when you're a survive when you have grown up sort of surviving a lot of challenges that you ultimately have unless you become a depressed version of that like you ultimately know that you'll be okay like I was thrown into like three languages by the time I was 15 and multiple countries and had gotten through all those situations. And so I am very able to enter into a new place and sort of figure stuff out, like where the, you know, I have a good interior compass. Um, so I don't know if I ever really worried. I, I, by the time I was becoming an artist, I had so much life already lived. You know, I went away from my parents at age 11 to school for the first time, the boarding school. So I already had lived, you know, these intense lives. My biggest concern as a maker is that, especially now, sort of, I guess, coming into an age where I'm like, oh, maybe I've lived half my life. Like, oh, okay. Is that I just have so many things I want to do. Right? Like, I'm like, shit, I want to paint all these paintings. But then there's these stories I haven't written down. And so I have that, but it's not an urgency that makes me anxious. I just want to become more efficient. 
like I'm obsessed with efficiency, right? So it's like how to have people around you who have good communication, how to have systems that work, you know, hmm. where food, you know, like I, I don't want to spend a lot of my time thinking about like doing, I don't know, doing laundry or, uh, you know, stuff like that. I want to have, be able to flow in creativity as much as possible. So those are the kinds of things I think about. I think about food all the time, but that's basically, it's like, what, what's the next snack? What's for lunch? What's for dinner? You know, (laughs) (laughs) uh, how, how many hours do you spend in the studio? It really depends. You know, um, I can get into like super fluid deadline oriented, uh, extreme 12 hour pushes, but that can't go on forever because uh, so much of a life gets neglected when those periods happen. Um, but on average, I would say somewhere between three and five hours a day. Okay. And I, I paint until I can't see the painting. Sometimes you have to paint through that uh, where you're like, I can't see the painting, but I have to finish in a few weeks. Um, and so you have to paint and paint and paint. Um, and, and then that's a kind of delirium, which again is interesting. But I try to paint through, like right now I have maybe six or seven paintings at the same time. So I'll I'll paint on all of them to a point where I think, uh oh, I should stop until tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, so I, I, of course, have an instinct for what can't see the painting anymore means. But what does that mean to you? Well, you know, there is a point where we all, you know, we're all painters here. So it's like, uh, you know, we know what overpainting means. Um, but when you stop, when you've taken an idea all the way through on the surface, and it just could be that if you go too many steps further, that you're going to lose some really great material. Um, and it's a bit, it's a bit of being in no man's land and leaving it. I love the sense of that we're as painters, we're collaborating with ourselves, but the selves that were yesterday. And of course the selves that are coming on the next day. So I always think about that when I'm painting, like, wow, this is so crazy from yesterday, um, what can I set up for tomorrow me? You know, maybe leave a few uh, sort of new ideas, but just leave them so that, again, back to efficiency, so I can come in the studio in the morning and and just be like, what? Okay, pick up that line. And so Mm. paintings in a way are, um, uh, what is it? An exquisite corpse with the self. Yeah, what a beautiful way to put that, like a collaboration between yesterday's self and tomorrow's like, there's something really nice about the way you you view that, that is, you're in constant change, your work is in constant change, and it's just part of this flow of your life, you know, it's just, it's a little, in, in that way, it would be a record of that person a year ago or whatever, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I definitely see that, um, especially in the last few years. I've been, uh, I lived in Berlin for a couple of years and seeing how I felt about living in Berlin and I could see the change in my work Hmm. and there was something just really uh, happy, not that I'm unhappy, but that I was really interested in what was happening and I was influenced by the environment. And I could I could track that in the work. Also, you know, it's a new context, new light. That light in LA is very specific. So different colors happen here 
just in relation to the ambience, you know? Um, then there's the art store materials that the colors are different, just they're different brands. So there's different colors. And I found that I was starting paintings here, rolling them up, putting them in the duffel bag, taking them to Berlin. And then they would just look so different. Just the light. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a different cool. response. So I'm very interested in that, that um, how, you know, how we're responding to our own location. And then I just did, I have a show up in Korea right now where the, the language barrier wasn't a barrier. Um, I just don't speak Korean. It just, so we were, you know, uh, working with the generosity of the of the team in Seoul. And one of the notes I got was that they really liked happy paintings. And I, I mean, this whole conversation started in my brain where I was like, what is a happy painting, right? <laughs> like, is it that the colors are warm or is it that, like, what does that even mean? And so I began to think about, you know, I think a lot about coming to the painting in different emotional states. Right. So sometimes I come to painting needing to be like, Thanksgiving <laughs> therapy. <laughs> and then sometimes I come to the painting and I'm like, let's just let go of everything. Be Zen-ish before starting and then just sort of seeing, you know, putting on the tunes or the podcast. And um, and so painting can have all these, again, it's that record of these different emotional needs and states. Hmm. Wait, Did you so, get an answer to what a happy painting was? <laughs> yes, I think so. I think a happy painting is a painting of the artist being as present as possible. Mm. And in the specifics for the show in Korea, I didn't have time because the the show doubled in size just a few, literally maybe like four weeks before it needed to ship. And so I didn't have the time on some of the paintings to actually hesitate. And that was interesting. Like what would life look like without, and it's not that I didn't have the, when I think hesitation can be a wonderful thing or, you know, I had the time while painting to be able to look at things with a mature eye. So I don't want to say that I was being superficial, but I didn't have the time to doubt like is this the right next move it was like just make the next move and the one after that and the one after that because what I learned from that is after 25 years of painting I actually know what I'm doing <laughs> so being able to do that showed me oh like painting could be less torturous and more just about it was more I, I found it was more accepting I found the painting so maybe that's the answer is that um my nature, my genuine nature is happy. Mm. That I didn't need to worry so, you know, that just, just to let it flow. Wait, mm. so Alexander, let's go back to efficiency, which is like an unsexy word. I but love it. Um, make it. Let's make it sexy. I don't know. We don't need to make it sexy. Um, <laughs> but it's something that like, you know, so I want to do like, 10 things in life, but I feel, I always feel like I have time for maybe like two and a half and, and one of those is the kids. So really one and a half. And then, but since I've said yes to like five, I'm always just dropping the ball. Can you talk about like what, you know, like a, I want to know about what you want to get done. Um, it just, you know, there's a painting and you have a publishing house, but I also want to know, like, you know, do you have any advice 
for, let's say, someone like me who really wants to get 10 things done but only has time for two and a half? Well, I mean, Dina, I've watched you, so I know you are one of the most efficient people that I've watched. I've seen you in action. You're very good at looking at a space or a group and realizing that, no, you don't need to, you're not responsible for (laughs) any of these things. And then you're good at exiting stage left and then going and doing your thing. You also have this thing that I couldn't possibly do, which is I couldn't paint publicly, right? So I'm much, I'm a absolute hermit when it comes to painting. Like It's very hard for me to be in the same space. I mean, I'm getting better at it over time, despite need um to be able to still be in the zone if other human beings enter into the space so you're you have those gifts already so I just want to highlight those first I mean I think what you just said is that we understand what's on fire for us not like danger but you know for you it's like family relationship that's so important because that's what keeps us grounded and tethered um and then it's that, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of like, okay, in the next two weeks, I have to get these seven things done. I mean, I'm a total procrastinator. So the way I work with myself is that if I want to paint, I'll paint. And if I don't want to paint, then I won't paint. I'll just do the, th- you know, and if something's bothering me, the laptop's in the studio, so I can just hammer out those emails, take care of that, and then get to the painting. I also think that painting is something that's done peripherally, right? That I'm working on a painting. I'm like, okay, I'm just inserting purple to these seven areas, but I'm always looking out of the corner of my eye at the other paintings. And then I'll look down and then I'll go, oh, wait, this color can go over there. So there's like, again, it's that, that flow. I always, but I try to position myself to work best with my own nature. I mean, one of the things I've always known about myself, it's just, why why do I wanna live a life of self-discipline? That feels like self-castigation. I wanna work in a life where I'm working with what I'm good at. And uh, so when I, like, I don't even call it procrastination, I call it rest. And so it's like, oh, I'm just looking at magazines. Well, you know, magazines are full of colors and then fashion or whatever it is, there's going to be some idea. So if I'm quote unquote resting, then that will immediately, I'll get bored of them, right? So none of us want to do any one thing for too long. Everything we fantasize about doing when we're doing something else, you go and do it. It's like going on vacation. And then after three days, you're like, oh my God. Like, I need something to do, you know, like, so it's really just sort of like honing in on what, like, how much time should be spent doing each thing. And then, you know, I think I have the opposite. I think I could pretty much do any one thing almost forever and not get tired of it, except there's never really a chance to concentrate on one thing. Uh, um, That's interesting. I mean, I used to feel that way. I just, I don't so much anymore because I add up, I really just see, like, for me, paintings are also accumulation. So I, I have more faith in that accretion like, than I used to. I get hungry though. So Dina, maybe this is like our big difference is that I'm like, <laughs> okay, where's the snack? But I also think this is something interesting with artists is how we, even you both doing the podcast is that how, do, how we, um, the net of what we do, it's all connected, right? So of course this podcast is part of, 
communicating to a broader audience, but it's also to feed you so you can go back and be alone because that loneliness of the, of the studio artist who works alone, you know, you have to feed your soul. You can't just send arrows out all the time. You have to have them return in. So I think that's very true. And, and I wonder if that's like part of a journey, like maybe when you're learning something or whatever, beginning something, just hours and reps are important. But then once you get comfortable with it, know what you're doing, it feels like there are in a way like diminishing returns on those breakthroughs. And I wonder if you could find them in other things, like you're saying, like looking at a magazine or doing something else that's, you know, taking a karate class or something like it feels like you could find other things to bring into your practice that are more valuable than just keep hitting the same notes over and over again, you know? Yeah. I mean, that possibility of realizing that there's more, more to the scale than what you thought. I, you know, I remember a breakthrough moment I had was one of the rules I set up in grad school is I will never illustrate or illustrate and then I illustrated a book and I was like, I didn't die, you know, like I broke my own rule. And then I was like, well, why did I think I could illustrate? Hmm. And then it just allowed more room in the painting. I, it, these things happen gradually over time. Another breakthrough moment for me was that I had this rule that, yeah, that the text and the paintings would just be separate from the image part, that it would, you know, it would be all in one, but I was very... I don't know. I had just had this very rigid idea. And then what I saw is that over the years that my work just kept getting shown next to Mel Bachner's and these group shows about text art over and over again. Not that I was against it, but I was like, I'm not just a text painter. Like I'm a painter of abstraction with language. So how do I alter the paintings? How do I shift the paintings so I can be in the conversation I want to be? But that took... 10 years of painting in a specific way to then say, no, I need to do something because I'm not in the conversation through my art. And I think sometimes artists make the mistake of trying to get in a conversation they want to be in through their mouths <laughs> or through their writing, which is fine, but that their work doesn't do the thing hmm. that hmm. they want to. And so that's an important moment where I was like, no, I want to be, I want to be in the conversation with, in LA with Rebecca Morris and with Laura Owens and like with the other women, Eva Gergova, you know, Leah Yastafer, I want to be in conversation with them. But right now I am in this cul-de-sac of texter. And huh. that's okay. And I want to be in relationship to those artists, but my painting is more than that. And that's the reason I'm doing it. So I had to make a shift in the work. And so I think these things happen gradually, but I guess the efficiency we're talking about is like, what geologic scale is it like a daily scale? You know, I'm obsessed with, I'm obsessed with efficiency on every, like on a day, how can I make it flow the best on a week? How can I, you know, a month and, you know, those kinds of questions. You feel, it feels or from the outside, like you're extremely confident in your pace in the world. Like it feels like you know the next step. And I don't know if it feels like that to you, but that's what it looks like from the outside. <laughs> well, I do know the next step, but I don't know if I know the next step so far. You know, one of the things that I've really has helped me understand my place in the world has made me less frustrated because I honestly think that frustration is a big waste of our energy as well, you know, is that I think 
some careers, when you look at some artists' careers and you just see them, you know, like create these opportunities or get opportunities that just seem so linear, right? And I'm like, my, my career has not been linear. So first I had to sort of throw that idea. Part of that is being an, a woman artist, you know, that you kind of go, oh crap, it's not going to work that way. But part of it is every artist has to learn that you're going to have part of your career in galleries, part in museums, part in nonprofits, and part coffee shops or no one's, you know, like, uh, you know, you have to learn how to diversify where you work and how you show your work, publish, publishing. And then I can't remember what, I just got so excited, Dean, I can't remember what I'm answering. <laughs> Um, you know, um, I'm not sure I asked a good question. So you didn't need to give a straightforward answer. Um, I think what I gave was more or less like a perception of, so I first oh, met you on, for, yeah, I first met you on this boat. Uh, right, literally the, boat, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's um, a boat to the island. And even like the ways that you hold yourself, it feels like you like, it feels like you don't have imposter syndrome. Like you're sure of who you are and kind of like where you're at in relation to the world. That's very kind and I appreciate that. I mean, one of the things is that, you know, I'm very aware of my body. And I have said this before publicly. So this is, you know, not a new thing, which is that I'm six foot one and now I have white hair. So it's not like when you're tall, like you can't hide. You literally, and especially when you have bright white hair on top of it, it's just, I can't, there's no way for me to hide. If I hide, I start scrunching over and then that hurts my back. So it's like, I can't pretend not to be tall. And, and I think that comes with self-acceptance of, I'm very aware of like what my gifts are because I'm equally aware of what I'm really not good at. And there's, th I have a lot of fear, but I'm really good at articulating what that is and to sort of stay away from it. So yeah, I, you know, I, I get such joy from, I mean, I think the phrase easily amused is I think a very interesting one because of course Nirvana, um, but it's this idea of like, I had a I had a report card when I was in Mexico as a child where the teacher wrote Alexandra could learn in a dustbin. And for me, what that's meant as an adult is that I'm literally like, okay, we like what's in a trash can? Let's figure out, oh, the anthropology of who was here before and what were they eating and how did they throw it away? I I I think there's something to be learned from anyone and anywhere. Like we're living in a built environment. Um, or, you know, and if we go into nature, wow, you know, like that there is so much to learn about the world. And we know, you know, we're just a few senses on legs walking around, like trying to put stuff together. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm always in awe and honored and I know how hard it is to be an artist. And so I don't, I don't know. I, I see people on the up and I've seen people on the down in the art career. And it seems to me that the best place to be is, is just to be humble and grateful for every opportunity. You know, whether you're coming up or coming down, like, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I, I love life. I, I, I don't know how else to say it. Even the problems are interesting if you can emotionally distance yourself from them. So, hmm. and I think that, you know, one of the things, again, not coming into the art world with this idea of I was going to have a big career in this linear way that... I've just been more curious about it. And then when I felt that 
the opportunities I was having weren't that interesting to me. I was like, well, why don't I create opportunities for myself and for others that are interesting? But that's what artists have always done. So I don't feel like it makes me stand out. But, you know, we can have interesting conversations when we're invited to the table at the institution. But when we're not invited to that table, let's build a table and then, you know, invite other people to be part of it. So I just I just don't see I think a lot again how I see artists getting grumpy about you know their careers not being where they want them to be and there's parts when we're talking about injustice and institutional discrimination yeah let's fight that and let's get rid of that but then the natural ebbs and flows of career like that's take a moment just you know the light's not on you okay that's cool Celebrate the people who it's on. Use that time to go be a mole in the library. You know, like those periods of time where we get to be a mole, the light's not on us. So go deep, go into the dark. Oh, that's great. Is, is that, do you, do you think you, what did that look like when you were saying you building opportunities? Were you, did, did you do that through community? Is that, how you your career advanced do you think just sort of like putting on your own shows and things like that how, how did that go yeah when I first moved to LA that I got this opportunity to curate a show with an artist um, named John O'Brien and I had to put myself in the show that was part of the deal and so immediately I had to go to artist studios in a city where I didn't know people so when people complain about not having things come to them. I'm like, well, why don't you be something that goes to another person? Create that opportunity. Hmm. So I often tell young artists, yeah, if you're stuck, go curate a show, organize your friends. Like that's a very proactive way of, of engaging. I would say, you know, I've often thought about, there's an example I'd love to give. There is a wonderful woman named um, Pilar Tompkins Rivas. And when she first, now she's, you know, the chief curator of the Lucas Museum here in Los Angeles. But at the beginning of her career, her first curatorial job outside a gallery was at a small nonprofit called 18th Street Art Center. And when I wanted to go do that, people were like, well, what's that space? And I just knew, you know, now it seems like a no brainer, right, that I would want to have worked with Pilar because now she's a chief curator. But at the time, I just had a really good feeling. So I think Again, if we can think in these more feminine ways about this person makes me feel good, their intellect makes me, you know, pop with electricity, I'm going to pursue that. But that's been the art world for me, you know, is that I've trusted my own intuition about people and places. And then later it's made sense to other people. Um, the art world for me, a lot, I would say that about 80% of the art world operates from this organ. So people aren't really looking, they're listening to what other people think is important. And that's okay. You know, I think that's how people make money and sort of continuity happens and the sort of upvoting happens in the community. But I'm always very grateful for those who take the risk to use their eyeballs and state what they plainly, you know, what they see from their eyes rather than to agree. I think a lot of people agree to like things that they don't even like or understand because of the human nature of, of a ear-based art world, which is endearing. I don't see it as like, oh, it's upsetting, but 
it's the biases of the ear that I find upsetting. If, you know, only certain kinds of artists are promoted through talk and through listening, then, then we do have a problem of encoded discrimination that we have to address. But yeah, I think all of these things are living. And so we, we have the opportunity to think about them, to reflect on them and then to figure out creative ways to love and change them. You know, Alexander, that ear-based kind of, that is probably the most like perfect analogy of the contemporary art world. And at least like, you know, so the audience for this podcast, at least when it started out, was actually kind of very much like mine and Marshall's figurative art bubble, which has its own problems, but they're, they're mostly looking, actually. Everyone's Nobody's listening. <laughs> and I, yeah, yeah, I think I'm not. That's the problem, right? <laughs> some point in your life. We have an eyeball bias in, in our in our world. <laughs> um, but but then like I think a lot of sort of the trouble that our version of the art world has is the contemporary art world, as you're right. I think it's just using two different organs and, and maybe not being able to communicate with each other as well. No, that's a great that's a great way of putting it. I mean, it's funny because I was also thinking about like thank you both so much for the gift of receiving me to your podcast I'm so glad that it's grown and grown and grown over the years and you know when I when I was talking about being stuck at a certain career point people would ask me are you a representational or an abstract artist and I think but it's writing I'm both you know and and I think that the idea that people are so literal about symbolism whether it's an image of a body or an image of a word um you know, that we each get to the limitations of the world we set out in. And what I love about you two doing this podcast is you hit your, you hit walls of that world and you wanted more, that you were hungrier and spongier for more feedback um, and information. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love that world. Like the, like I love it. I, come, oh, I love my world too, yeah, you know, come from it, <laughs> but there's it, like, um, but also just, I think, being interested in people who, you know, like the, like, if we stick to our own bubble, then we never hear what goes on anywhere else. And what goes on everywhere else is really, really interesting. Um, sometimes even just by virtue of being something that we're unfamiliar with. Uh, uh, um, but I'm, I'm totally going to use that as uh, an ear analogy from, from now on, uh, because I think it kind of sums up like, you know, like I wander around galleries in Chelsea whenever I'm in New York. And a lot of the time I either don't understand or can't connect. Um, but I think it's because I'm, you know, I'm used to looking at stuff and taking it in through my eyes. And I think in, in a way I don't actually like, I don't like reading about it. Um, right, right. Right. Or like, I like reading about it only if I like what I'm looking at. Uh, but I think maybe the, the problem is that I'm, I'm not hearing it. I'm having trouble listening. Uh, well, um, or that you're not part of the circle of the yeah. telephone game that they, the show or the gallery show is about, you know, and I think that that's an interesting moment too, that we all have when we're outside a world going, what's this about, you know, and. Can you, can you put your finger on what it is in, in a painting? This is a super broad question, but it, it makes me, it, some of this conversation was making me think of it, like that you respond to when you look at art, what is it that you 
respond to the most, I would say? You know, there's, I would, I'm gonna answer sort of the negative of that. There is this one color green that if I see it in a painting immediately, I'm like, nope. Like <laughs> that artist didn't bother to mix that one. It's like, uh, I don't even know if I can, I'll get you the name of it, but it really drives me nuts. It, you know, when you know an artist is just beginning because they can't be bothered to mix their paint colors. I mean, I, I sometimes don't mix because I use the contrast of, you know, the found color versus the mixed color. So for me, a painting is done or complete when I just have a sense that the, the artist has really interrogated like every aspect of what they're doing. You know, like they understand the material, they understand like the brushstroke. There's enough awareness to have contrast within the painting. So for me, paintings are, they're the only media where you can really lie about time. And, and not lie, where you can obfuscate time, right? So you could pretend that this arm is on top of the body, but in fact, it was the thing that was painted first, not the last gesture, right? So you can always, so when I use the word oneric in terms of painting, it's like, it's the true dream space where things that would never be possible, even in literature, even in a movie, even in a game, any, you know, that, that could be in the same plane. And hmm. that to me is when, when I see that a, that a painter has this understanding of time, of and, and then that game begins. Well, what was the first brushstroke? What was the last one? You know, I, you can always tell another painter when they're on the side of the painting looking, you know, like, <laughs> like that. What, and so it's someone who you understand who has been in the kitchen of painting as much as you have giving and, and loves it, you know? Sometimes, does, you know, I'm not saying doesn't get filled with emotions that are negative, but like loves this material, right? Like, they and that they understand their own limitations and somehow that gets revealed too so mm. i don't know if i answered that question but you know it's that that feeling of joy and and a finished painting is always asymptotic right like you're never going to finish it you'll get a little bit closer to finishing it but you'll never finish it in that point where i feel like a mature artist and that doesn't mean an age or a number it just literally means that they know what they're doing but that they stop they're like you know what this is this is as close as I'm going to get. I'm so happy you said that. Yeah. Cause I don't feel like anything's ever truly finished either. Yeah. You so. know, and then the other answer, especially in a solo show is that you can see that an artist has this sense of composition in relation to the whole body of work. Mm. Like that they're, they're having these thoughts over time on multiple surfaces. So that is another sort of source of joy for me. Hmm. Did, did you ever okay uh what uh, like i'm not sure if this is a specific moment or just uh, like also an accretion of um kind of events and paintings and shows over time but did you ever have a moment of like oh yeah like i became the artist that i wanted to become at some point you know the you know one of the things that happened to me is that i passed that point very early um so i was very fortunate in the sense that i had some wonderful number of incredible group shows, like a great first solo show, and then skipped ahead to first museum show. Hmm. And I didn't have gallery representation. There was a lot that was sort of awkward growth um, in, in terms of that. So I 
by having my first museum show, I went further than I had dreamt for myself. So at that point, I realized all bets were off in life, right? Like, oh, shoot, this is more than I thought. And so then, but then I had to like go and fix certain things. Like I was like, what's gallery representation? Like I have museum shows. So I had to go backwards. And then once all of that had happened, I realized that I just was having such a different experience. Then art, then, then admit, right? That actually all artists have crazy paths, but like then this myth of linearity. And then that opened my mind to, oh, okay, it's nonlinear. So it's going to go backwards. It's for, you know. Um, the yeah. linear comes like, the, that's the story we tell at the end, right? It seems like it all made sense, but you're basically okay. Wally Coyote nailing boards. And then, nailing yeah. boards. Yeah. Nailing boards, yeah. And and then just keeping moving forward, because I think the boards work. Where you're, if you stop, that's when the board ladder to infinity or the bridge to infinity falls. It doesn't fall as long as the movement forward. Is he would he would always fall when he looked down, right? Like yeah. he could he could walk on air until he looks down at the ground and then he falls. No, it's I mean I just think that's the best. It's such a great analogy. No, you also realize I mean things where like illusions wear off and they wear off like at appropriate ages in the art career. You know, you give up believing in Santa Claus. I mean it's like when I first realized like, oh, this idea that the art world is a black market. Oh, whoa. Okay. You know, and then the profane enters in. We talked about the divine, divine earlier. Well, well then suddenly there's the profane with the, the divine in the art world. So that vision of arts becomes, became more nuanced to me. You know, um, once I could make a living as an artist, that also shifted things. Um, in, in just a very simple way, when I had uh, part-time jobs, I would look forward to making art. But when art became my job, then what was I looking forward to if I was already in the studio? So I had to, you know, recalibrate my my mind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, yeah, shifting relationships with different writers, accepting growth, um, always analyzing expectations. I mean, an expectation I had was that after a few successes that I would just continue, continue. So then ah, I was believing in a linear model. It's that it doesn't, you know, um, community. The, the importance of community. I meet a lot of younger artists who are so gifted and, and then they're frustrated. And I'm like, well, what's missing is that you're not part of a community. Mm. It's once you have community that you can really begin to build a career with other people in that exchange. It's so important. So, you know, none of us have it figured out and, and we truly aren't doing it alone. I mean, one of my good friends is a writer named Roxane Gay and we were on a panel a few years ago and we That's were so, so hard because she was like I you know I was like I got into painting so I wouldn't have to hang out with people and there's so many people in my life and she's like the same with writing you know that you have this these are the different illusions right that set you off you know like us Dina on the famous boat we we we, we set off with a certain number of illusions and we landed on the island having had all of those expectations you know broken but not to fail it's just with new ones right like okay we're gonna come up with a covid policy and we're gonna figure out how to band and people together and share and and also you know the thing is is how to be part of a community where you're not only being listened to or sharing but where you're listening and sharing and 
receiving from other people. Oh. So that sense of reciprocation for me is such a big part of how I've experienced being an artist. And you said, what did I imagine when I was younger? I didn't picture the depth of relationship. Because oh. I, again, I had this experience of constantly moving so I didn't have that, even though friends and family, you know, I would write to everyone and stay in touch. The idea of staying in a place year after year for decades in one community, that feeling is extraordinary for me, right? In the in the art life is turbulent in terms of security, but community can't really get taken away from you. You know, I mean, I'm sure in some ways it could get fractured. We can imagine all kinds of things, but basically that's something you get to keep. You don't necessarily get to keep the money you made from a painting or the gallery show or whatever. That can all come and go. But community is that that is a treasure that you get to keep with you, which is really powerful it seems like the, the motivation should be geared towards that and just see what happens can you talk a little bit like while we're on community about the grant love project because i feel like that's one of the things that you're doing that you know yeah no i i'm very interested in the problems of philanthropy in the arts you know i think that um in the economic system we live in with art one of the one of the disillusions it then becomes an interesting one is how art gets valued, how our work gets valued, how we get paid, how we support ourselves and others, and how philanthropy plays such a big role in the artist's life. Um, and I, I'm sure like you get asked all the time to donate artworks to fundraisers to support the community. And this of course, I want to be part of that. I want to support the community. But then I also was like, but wait, you're asking me all the time. I can't afford to give away half the studio every year. And so how do I do that? So I came up with a solution that allowed me to participate in a meaningful way to in fundraising, um, which was to create love art with this trademark love symbol that I have. And uh it, it has also allowed me to ask and hopefully model, like, why do we expect philanthropy to come from above only? And what are the problematics of that system? I, I don't think the Grand Love Project is the answer, but it's my answer that I've given under the particular frameworks that I am functioning in at this historical economic moment. Um, but it's been a joy to be able to create love art and in collaboration with many other people. The love book is coming out from Abrams, I think very soon in the next few days. And it gathers together 12 years of the projects. Hmm. It's just been really fun to be able to, you know, we all ask of our own work, like, what does this really mean? Or how is this really making the world better? And uh, I'm so glad that with the Love Project that I can relieve the studio from that pressure. So the studio is not about that, right? Um, and it's about being the studio or the best, you know, it's about exploration and time travel and geeking out. But the Love Project is functional and it's about loving together loving others together. 
Um, and the book is gorgeous, by the way. So I, I, I happen to have an advanced copy that, um, and it's absolutely stunning. Anyone who's listening, when is the actual release date? December 6th, which I think is in a week. Um, okay, so you're ready. I know. Good luck. Congratulations. Is there going to be like a book release and a big party in the... You know, we've uh, had a few little things. Uh, I'll be in New York in uh, early next year. So, of course, we'll let you guys know if, if you're anywhere nearby. Um, but, yeah, it'll be in bookstores and online starting. I think it's from pre-sale now, but starting next week, which is really exciting. You know, for me, it's also this question of, like, how of how does solidarity work? Like, how do we not only uh, help our communities and give to our communities and other people that we know and don't know, but then how can we talk about how help is given and by whom and who controls what that looks like? So I, I think these are all interesting questions to artists because resources are such a big question of our daily lives, mm -hmm. you know, is to ask like, well, who's in charge of those resources and why are certain kinds of art, you know, being celebrated and not other kinds and you know, some agendas are really important for sort of rectifying historical uh, disadvantages placed on certain communities, but then others are, you know, highly problematic, you know, looking at like Nan Golden and her incredible work to hold accountable the Sackler family for the mm -hmm. opioid crisis and their role in supporting the arts. So, you know, I, I think that money is, money in the art world and we have to you know as artists we're part of we become part of that once we enter the market and it's very hard when you're a, a struggling artist and your focus is on avoiding poverty to understand that there's this system that's so in unequal and unjust and how to actually talk about it but I read um Lawrence Weschler had this great book about Picasso where he said, you know, Picasso was just minting his own money. And, and that really made me think, well, what if artists could, if like, what would, I mean, if Dina was in charge of artist money, it would be so beautiful. Right. <laughs> but like, what if we could mint our own money? Hmm. And, and I'm very interested in that for artists. Like what would happen to our creativity? I mean, globally, if we weren't so worried about money, Right. Like what would how would what role would our art play? How would we make it if it wasn't in relationship to money? And I try to again, I try to ha live in the studio since I my studio was in my kitchen and I could barely afford that space. I mean, I still feel very tied to that, even as I've grown older and have, you know, sort of more appropriate space to what I make. But like what is, I try to make the work first and then, you know, come to the space and the show. Um, but these questions I think are really important ones, right? Because so many artists that we compare ourselves to have created art that's a financial instrument. And right. so, right, so how do we compare ourselves to a financial, like basically artworks that are have been financially instrumentalized and and so we have to ha sort of have thoughts and strategies around all these things that get us back to joy, the divine connection, sort of a fearlessness about the other or a curiosity about it. 
Because it really is like, I don't know, like you said, the profane coming in, that difficult thing to reckon with, like, who are you selling your work to? How does it work? Who's getting these opportunities? And it's so it's so interesting to hear you talk this way because reality does come in pretty quick from just, you know, a teenager drawing pictures and then, well, what do I do with these? And then little compromises along the way to get, and it's like, and then you find out it's a huge structure that you know nothing about. And then you're like, wow, this got really complicated ethically and logistically and all kinds of stuff, you know? And I find it interesting too, when you look at art schools and I was a visiting artist recently and I was talking about money in my talk and one of the teachers said that no one talks about money in the art world and I was thinking how is that even possible and then how does that reflect on when you look at the makeup of who goes to art school and that those people in art schools aren't practicing professionally like at the same numbers just you know again I'm not going to get into issues beyond gender but if you look there's over 50 percent of our students are women and then immediately the the opportunities are maybe a quarter go to women so what happens yeah. to all those women wow. and and that that idea like okay so people aren't taught that art is a business well who does that benefit what kind of artists already knows that maybe artists who know about business so it's it, it's an interesting series of questions that i have and i like to make work I and mean, one of the things in the love book that was part of my education is that I trade because I knew about Robert Indiana, right? So I had my little art education and I was like, oh, Robert Indiana didn't protect his love symbol. I'm going to protect mine. And I filed for the trademark. And then three months later, got sued by a giant corporation that claimed they own the word love. And I was like, what just happened? You know, and okay, none wait, of that. Wait, 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 wait. Which, I mean, are you allowed to say which giant? Yeah, no, no. I got sued by Cartier because they have a love bracelet. Wow. And, I, and so, they also have an art um, foundation. And so for me, it was this, again, when the profane entered the space of the sacred, it was like, but wait, this corporation has a foundation. Can't they see that I'm an artist and I'm just trying to do good, you know, in between quotes. And so then it became about property ownership and who and the corporations were claiming, you know, ownership over certain words in terms of trademarks and and as a business strategy and it's like I think one of the moments that was wonderful for me you know I think growing up is becoming disillusioned and then moving forward so I remember Lawrence uh, Wiener said to me he's like oh yeah of course I have an attorney <laughs> I'm Lawrence you know like I, I I have copywritten most of my work. And of course I am in legal battles all the time. And I I just remember thinking, you know, of him as this sort of like, I don't know, sort of like easy spirit. And when I realized that he had like a legal department, basically, I was like, wow, okay. You know, again, it was just this a bit of naivete going away. And then a more grown-up version where instead of being naive, I feel innocent. Because that's something you can preserve. Naivete, you can't preserve, right? <laughs> so you can preserve your innocence, but you cannot preserve your naivete. So like that was a moment for me where I was like, okay, wait. So there's all of 
these artists that are, again, they're not talking about money. They're not talking about legal problems. Um, they're just pretending like that this, these things exist in the world without all the real sort of business backend. And so part of the love book, the decision to be honest, um, A, I wasn't writing the historical record, so I had to hand that over to an expert, but I feel that it's not a, a it, when we're educators or when we're teaching about art, that it has to be everything underneath the water. It's not just what's seen. It's what's actually happened to support what's seen, which is the tip of the iceberg is what's seen. So I wanted our other artists to know not to, not to just avoid that situation, but to understand that, that being in the public eye or putting work in the public eye is so much more complex than what is being described. Mm. Often in critical or aesthetic thinking and writing and teaching and to be more practical about it because those of us who were taught sort of practical art learn by doing and then if that knowledge isn't passed on then other people from minority groups will have to learn again and again the same lessons that are sort of passed on for you said earlier um something if i like like just in passing you said that you learned that the art world is a black market uh, do you want to talk about that? Or is that, is that one of those things you maybe no, want to- No, I love talking about it because it happened in a very specific way for me. Um, I was watching The Mona Lisa Curse by Robert Hughes. I know that one, yeah. It's a great documentary. And in it, you know, he faces the camera and says, you know, his wonderful accent, um, you know that after drugs and arms, that art is the number three black market in the world. And- I don't know. I mean, I'd already been an artist professionally for over 10 years. And before that had even occurred to me. And I just remember sort of, you know, you sit back sometimes and you're just like, that physically the information has overwhelmed your body. And, <laughs> and then I realized, no, that's actually very true. That, that, and then you begin to look at art geopolitically, right? So, wow, you know, all of those sites that were looted to fund ISIS. Well, of course it makes perfect sense. There's an enormous black market for Assyrian treasures. Like why are museums looted and art? Because it's very hard to move a million dollars of gold bars, but it's really easy to move a small painting. Mm. So, so when we're talking about moving assets globally, of course art is such a good way of, of, of doing that. And so it is, but it's a very disillusioning moment, I think for, an artist who hasn't had that realization. I think every artist um, has this realization about the art world being like, what does a transaction really mean? You know, what does it really mean? And in the same way that like we, that we do this in our own and just in relationship too, right? Like that our relationships, we move from an idealized relationship with our parents to one that is more practical where we accept sort of the shadow. And I think the shadow of the art world uh, is a very, it's very intense, mm. very intense thing. And, and to accept it is really the only way that you can function, it, right? That it's a business, that it's these, that there are these transactional moments. And that also it's a way of accepting differences of knowledge, right? That there's people involved in the art world 
that only have ears, for example, or only have eyes, but people are involved in it as, as speculators. And then it's almost like how to understand why they would do that. Like, what is that interest? Um, to better understand it, to better, I don't know. I, I often think about the when we're against things, what's the best strategy? So for example, being against, so say you're an American and say you're a Democrat and you want to be against Trumpism, just hypothetically speaking. Uh, and I feel that people aren't quite understanding what, what's so successful about what people in, in who are Republicans or Trumpists have been doing, you know? And, and so part of understanding how, if there's something you don't like in the world, is to actually give it the respect to understand why it's working. And mm. I think we have to do that with systems that we don't like in the art world as well, right? Is to instead of just putting them down, we're not we're not understanding. And so in this what feels like a global need to face um, some sort of darker tendencies that don't love, don't take care of the environment and don't take care of people in the global south. And you know, all of these questions that we're facing. Um, it's it's how to understand, well, what are the nefarious intents and how are they, how do they work and how are they powered? Mm. And yes, art is one of the ways to smuggle money internationally that is used. So yeah. <laughs> because it's much more deregulated than, you know, than arms or drugs, right? And I feel like it's much more deregulated than the stock market where like, I feel like if some of the stuff that goes on in our world was public, like if, if an equivalent happened in the stock market, people would be arrested for insider trading. But I feel like in the art world, it's just like, that's fine. You know? Yeah. And, and then we have to look at like, that is today. But like, when we look at like historical colonial practice of like, we will take all of the treasures of your kingdom to take better care of them than you will. Like that whole impulse has to be interrogated and people really are beginning that tough work. So what was that colonial practice? How does that practice still affecting the world today, right? Where treasures are kept for the safety. I, you know, I, I think these are all really interesting questions around art and financial profiteering, uh, symbolic profiteering that we have to continue to look at. So as an artist, I'm always trying to find a balance between how do I make my work? And then how do I participate as a civic artist? Hmm. And that I don't, you know, I think we often talk about artists as activists. I don't think I'm an activist. I think I'm a civic artist if I had to define. But I also am someone who has a, a painting practice in relation to, um, I would say a Western tradition of painting, of abstraction. And so again, I wanna make sure that I that I continue these two pieces sort of side by side. Is there is there room for change from within, you think? Like small steps this way or that, or is it does it seem pretty well entrenched? For people in the world. <laughs> just just the corruption in the art world. I mean, how do what what's well, uh... I don't see it as corruption anymore. I see it as like just humans, you know, like humans needing to move well. And some people are functioning above the law, some people are functioning in the law and using this method. I 
again, I think it's a kind of efficiency and a practicality um, of hoarding artifacts and and extracting value. Um, but yeah, it's a colo- it's definitely colonial. Um, there's also this this like how do we even talk about so we that's sort of like the the shadow, but how do we talk about the desire? to decorate our own homes, you know, like that everyone has, everyone wants to have their own little space and stuff, or maybe not on the, on the walls. And how do we talk about that in relation to people wanting it all, right? So Mm. I think that's one of the questions of this moment that we're having these robber barons again, you know, Mm. in the world. And, and so, and people are justifying that some people should be wealthy and control a lot more than other people. And I'm, I, I think that I'm not sure about that. (laughs) Right. So, so how do we talk about a idea of human rights that is tied to shelter tied to the freedom to express oneself within one's own safe shelter and the the need for food, the need for um, creative education, which I think is like a, a human rights issue. So mm. again, I think, you know, I love it that someone asked this question in a group I'm part of, like, what do artists need today? And I think that artists need like it would be great. Yes, it would be great if everyone could have a studio and universal funding and all these things. But wouldn't it be interesting as well if we could think about some of these civic issues as though, Marshall, what you said, each one of us was an artist. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Alexander, before you were mentioning kind of like feminine energy, is that yeah. something you think about sort of like as opposed to masculine energy or kind of give us your take on that? When I think about fe- like the idea of feminine energy, and we've been talking about a lot of things about what happens as you grow up and that you become more part of institutions, that feminine energy or that free energy, that creative energy is what we're filled with as children. And so I also think that professional artists, not everyone is an artist. Not everyone who plays baseball is a professional baseball player. We just aren't, people aren't good enough. They just play something on the weekends. It's, it's, it's just, you know, but you can be an amateur artist. You can be an amateur baseball player, but how do we set up a society? When I say bring back feminine energy, how do we set up a society that honors the, our childlike nature without being naive about it, that honors the, the planet, that, that wants more people to be able to have their safe spaces in which they can be creative. Um, so, so by the way, I feel like you're, you know, you're like an extremely inspirational person in general, like the, um, and you're kind of magnetic and, you know, like, like, I feel like when people listen to you, they want to believe you. What advice would you have for, like, I feel like almost everyone listening to this podcast is probably, you know, is, is an artist is listening in their studio, like I get or driving to their studio, maybe well, we're in our studio. So perfect. Yeah. But what advice would you have for either everyone who's kind of entering into it, like like you were however many years ago, or is it people who are just doing the daily grind and maybe? Yeah. I mean, I one of the things that I actually compare art to all the time, which I know is just sports. 
I think that um, playing basketball as a young person, and I didn't play until I was a sophomore in high school, um, I learned about what discipline means, what playing with other people means. I learned a, a set of rules that could be shared across many kinds of people. Um, I understood a world that I hadn't made up and how to participate in it. So when I think about what does it mean to practice as an artist over time, I know, you know, I think about Olympians, you know, who are doing this crazy labor over years and then their whole career happens in like 30 seconds. Like that, that as artists, we have to understand that, that we're, we have to keep applying ourselves that we have to find joy in it when nobody is supporting us, you know? And then it's, yeah, it's great when the events happen, but that, the joy has to come in the practice, the discipline, the daily showing up, but that we have to find balance. Like you can't just work out, you know, for seven days and then show up to an event, right? That you have to understand how your body and mind, the psychology of it. And so when I talk to very young people, you know, kids are always like, well, what is it that could help me be an artist? And I'm, I often say, I don't really know very many professional artists who weren't athletic at some point in their lives hmm. and so because we don't have like that there's no that isn't being taught so I think the easiest way to teach it is to say like okay you're an artist you can you can't work out because you'll become an anorexic you know a sports anorexic you can become an art anorexic by overdoing it um but yeah what does it mean to set up athletes know because it's part of their training this is what you eat this is how you sleep. This is how much water you need. This is how many repetitions of this. There's not that training because art isn't the, I, the notion of what it is doesn't exist, right? Like it isn't shared by every art world. Um, but I do think that having some sort of practice that, uh, that you could compare to sort of an athletic regimen, which becomes more and more important for every human. So is it long walks that suits your body, you know? Like, are you, I, you know, it's, it, it's a kind of help. Like we've got to talk about our health. We're in our bodies as artists. And so I think that that, that idea of like, well, how much strategy do we need to do? You know, like, is it, if you're playing a sport, if you spend all your time being a strategy, then you're not going to be in shape to actually play the match or run the race. Right. So you have to really look at it in this holistic way. I, I actually think, I used to think it was ridiculous to be honest, but like our, our basketball coach used to make us visualize winning, which we weren't very good at winning, but I couldn't get into it. But now I think that like vis creative visualization of what we do in the studio is wonderful. Right. Hmm. Sometimes I lie and think about that. So I think that there's all these techniques that somehow are, we get disembodied as artists from our physical bodies. And I think correlating to yeah, also when you're starting out in like junior league baseball, you assume you're not going to be in the major leagues, right? And so, like, that people don't, like, there's a lot of um, expectations that get ruined for people. It's like, of course, you're not going to, you know, the first piano recital, you're not going to get sort of drafted to the NFL to mix metaphors. But like, you, you have to, like, that there's these processes that you have to go through and levels that you have to go through. And sometimes, yeah, you scoop right by them, but say you get, you know, drafted to a gallery, uh-oh, you don't know anything about the legal issues you're going to have. You don't know anything about 
sustaining a practice or balancing your books or wow you're in the light so suddenly out of nowhere all these dark kind of entities are going to come and and want something from you you know so we have to talk about yeah setting up those structures over time and and enjoying that process so I don't know if that is a good answer but I think it's the most honest and practical one that I can it's it's a really good answer like the um the, and now that I think like like now that you say that like I guess when you imagine a life as let's say a professional runner or like I don't know or a soccer player you know a lot of what's involved is going to be like a lot of practice and you know rep like repetition this diet that you know certain amount of like sleep self-discipline but when you're an artist like in a way a lot of us go into it or at least I certainly did like a not imagining what would happen but b like you don't imagine what kind of life it will be it will be and how much of just you know repetition and trying to mm -hmm. you know uh kind of keep yourself afloat while you know like um that uh will happen but also like we like we don't it's like everyone that we've talked to on this podcast right like that non um has has probably had a non-linear approach to you know like they're surviving right now at 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 40 at 50 at 60 uh, we interviewed audrey flack uh la last week and she was amazing but she's 91 um and like but but every single one and still painting like still like starting a new body of work uh, um but um no one's had the same approach and it's all been non-linear right um and and there is no one one path because you know the, um maybe the maybe the linear path worked for like one person at some point and then that one person ended up teaching in academia and telling everyone else that's going to work but but i think maybe like and i'm the world's worst sports person uh but i really like 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 i like the sports metaphor a lot the well and also when one of the things that we struggle with as artists is that we struggle how to communicate what we do to non-art people, right? So I think that the the having a sports discipline is a really good way of triggering the imagination of someone else who might understand what that requires. No, um, no, no, that's absolutely wonderful, uh, Alexander. Thank you. I feel like we've kept you for almost two hours. So thank you so. Oh my so gosh! Well, we have so much to say, and it could go on and on. Dina, I can't wait to see you again. And Marshall, I hope we get to meet in person one day. But thank you both so much for having me. This was so fun and really, really encouraging. I love this talk. So thanks so much. Thank you for listening, and I hope you got some good painting done while we entertained you with our amazing guest. If you like what you're hearing, follow and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't done so yet. And if you're so inclined, rate us whether you love or hate us. We love hearing all the different opinions and appreciate the feedback. You can reach out to us at artgrindpodcast at gmail.com or DM us on IG at artgrindpodcast. You faithful listeners have the power to help us grow. So please spread the word. It's free and you'll feel good about it. So until next time, stay on the grind while we fill your mind.